And this is where Don and Sue go out for a pleasant evening. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of This is Lutapod. My name is Darcy Stone and I am joined with everyone's least favourite member of Cos Industries. It's Costa K. Right, well that's factually inaccurate because the least favourite member of Cos Industries was Darcy Stone, which is why we kicked her out after, what, like a week? Well, actually I thought you were going to say Big G and I was about to lose my mind. No, absolutely not. Big, Big G. Big G is the MVG. You know what, fuck it, while we're on this subject, before we get into the nitty-gritty of the podcast, funny funny fact, uh, Cos Industries has only ever had, like, five official members. However, we have had multiple affiliates over the years. Do you think you could name more than three? I can only name myself, I'll be honest. Yep, you, you were a COS affiliate. Oh, Rhonda Rowdy. Rhonda Rowdy was. Ronda, um, Ronda Rowdy, yeah. Yeah, she's dead. She died in a horrific accident. Um, would it have been during my time at Lucha? Um, I mean, it wasn't at Lucha, but, you know. It wasn't any of the regime. Um... Ooh, kind of. Is it Bobby Champagne? No. no. Okay, so because we're going to be here all day, if I leave it to you, uh, I will name a few of our many, many affiliates that we've had. Um, so Ronda Rowdy was one. You were our head of security, uh, but you did a piss poor job, so we kicked you to the curb. I mean, I, I, I turned against you, but yeah, that's another story for another whatever, day. Whatever, whatever. <laughs> um, the other member of the regime uh, was... A gentleman who most will know, in, well, those who know him will know, will know as the Kraken. He oh, I was, was going to say Kraken. Yeah, he was the Cos Industries young boy. He, you know, he had to take photos for us when we were at shows and uh, record our matches. Uh, I say he had to. He he just did all of this because he was a very <laughs> nice man. Um, and yeah, he was our young boy uh, for a little while. Uh, or at least, you know, that's what I affectionately nicknamed him. Um, and then another one, uh, ooh, who would be a good one to surprise you with? Uh, oh, Vicky Guerrero, actually, is a Cosa Industries Yay. affiliate. Yeah. That's yeah, so weird. There you go, Vicky Guerrero. She, she I don't think good. she knows. Well, I don't think she knows it, but she, we, we consider her an honorary Cos Industries affiliate. Yeah, I could see she she blend in very very well. I think. Yeah, she was great. Um, but anyway, moving yeah. moving on, <laughs> we've spoken about uh, cost industries for long enough. Uh, before we get into the nitty gritty of the podcast, I'm really enjoying saying nitty gritty. By the way, <laughs> I can. Tell. Uh, <laughs> um, let's talk about what's going on. What uh, do you know? What happened this weekend? Well, we had Survivor Series, didn't we? We did. And, you know, I'm not going to talk about the whole pay-per-view because uh, this isn't a WWE review show. But one thing I did want to touch on a bit was the legendary farewell of the legendary Undertaker. Yeah. Finally, the, the hundredth goodbye to the Undertaker. 
But this well, one feels more final, I think. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it is one of them things, man. It's, it's hard when you're that passionate about something, especially like, you know, we see it all the time in wrestling where, you know, you, your body's telling you to stop, but you love it so much it's hard to, you know, hang those boots up. Mm. And I think he's tried to do that a few times, but maybe his heart wasn't necessarily in it every time. But now it does appear that he's kind of like officially done because he's finally kind of broken character and doing a lot of these uh, call inside interviews and letting us know, you know, about he's his also, life. He's had all of like the matches that he wanted to have and he's he's done what he set out to do and he doesn't really have any more milestones to hit. So. Yeah, exactly. And he will 100% not even a question, go down in history as the greatest wrestling character ever. Not even up for debate. Like you can, there's been a lot of great characters, but none of them have the prestige, the lineage, the history, and just the run that this guy has had, like literally 30 years. And that's just in the Fed. That's just in WWE. Like he was doing, he was in WCW before that. So he's been going for over 30 years. It's, you know, 30 years of The Undertaker character. Um, he is, um, he's a household name though. Like people who don't un- understand wrestling, who don't watch it, they always give you like a select amount of names depending on what, how old they are and when, when yeah. they're introduced to wrestling. But always Undertaker is one of those names. Well, yeah, because he's been around for so long, so many different generations of wrestling fan and not even not like you said, non wrestling fans will know his name. He'll be like if you go up to a non wrestling fan who's you know a relatively older individual, they'll probably tell you, oh, I've you know I've heard of the Undertaker because they saw him back in nineteen ninety. Mm-hmm. Then if you talk to someone kind of you know more our age who grew up watching the Attitude Era, same thing. And then, you know, even kids now will know who he is because he appeared he's at Mania all, every year. He's in all the memes as well. He's, like, probably the most memeable. Him and The Rock, like, they're king of the wrestling memes. Oh, I don't know. There's some good Vince memes. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Um, but while we're on the topic of The Undertaker, what... I'm going to put you on the spot. What is your all-time favourite Undertaker moment? Are we talking ever? Yeah, ever. You can you can give me more than God. one if you, if you want. You need it's a, really you need, really you tough. To, you need to sort your mic out as well, or oh, just stop, it? or just stop fidgeting. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, really professional here at the Luge Pod. I don't know. I'm really. I loved all of like his casket matches. I absolutely loved the match from WrestleMania this year. Mm-hmm. But he had so many different characters, and I'm trying to think of. Oh. I mean, I watched a few years ago. I watched his debut, and he's come leaps and bounds from that. I think, and that was at Survivor Series thirty years ago. Yeah. Um, I think him coming and doing the match with Brock is iconic, where he lost his streak. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the didn't he have that like really bizarre wedding with the, a sacrifice? Ah, yeah, when he tried to sacrifice Stephanie McMahon. There you go. That was superb. Absolutely <laughs> love that. Oh, wow. And okay. Any match with Shawn Michaels as well. Yeah. So, okay. So, for me, 
I, I agree. Matches with Shawn Michaels. Like, so there's loads of great Undertaker matches. Like, I think my all-time favourite does have to be Mania 25 with Shawn. Yeah. Um, the Boneyard match this year was also amazing. Um, a super underrated match that I really think people should all go out and watch if you haven't seen it before is Vengeance 02. It was Taker, The Rock, and Kurt Angle in a triple threat. Um, just an awesome, awesome workhorse of a match. Uh, but my all-time favourite Undertaker moment, like excluding matches... Ah, uh, Matt, you know what? I it is a tough one because there's been so many good ones. Um, but I think I'm gonna go with, and it, it's kind of it's 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 a take a moment, but it's kind of it was more about highlighting somebody else. But that was kind of the reason why I think I kind of liked it so much because it was evolving Taker's character and it was starting the path to a story that would just become one of the most iconic storylines in wrestling history. And it would be Kane's debut at the first hell in a cell when he Kane comes out, rips off the cage door and him and Taker are just stood there staring at each other and Taker for the first time in his career looks just like he's on the back foot. He looks Mm -hmm. scared and like, what the fuck is going on type thing. And it's just such a cool, big moment. And yeah, the Brothers of Destruction were born. Indeed. There yes. are so many. I hope someone puts together, like, a really good and really long, detailed video on YouTube or something where we can watch his sort of whole career. Because there was so much he did. And all of, like, that music is so iconic. When he did a few of his comebacks and stuff, like, what was the one where he came out, like, literally in the casket? Yeah, yeah, the one with uh, Randy Orton. Randy Orton, there you go, and it was so iconic. Yeah, he's an absolute, absolute legend, and if this truly is uh, his big farewell, then yeah, thank you, Undertaker. I guess that's the you know, thank you, Taker. Hashtag. Um, But yeah, what uh, what we got going on here now? Well, I do believe we have the culture exchange with you and, and Tom Dawkins. And I we think do. it's your turn, isn't it? Didn't you give him something to watch this time? Uh, yep, that is correct. So I, uh, in keeping with the theme that I've had going with Tom now for uh, a couple of weeks, it's the War Games theme, or mm-hmm. a couple of episodes, I should say. Um, so we've done WCW in the early 90s. We did WCW in the beginning of the 2000s. Now, we're moving forward to the late 2000s, 2009, and we're, we've changed companies. We've moved. It's TNA time to shine. Oh. So we're going, going to... Going to triple, are we? That's it. We're going to TNA's interpretation of War Games, which was lethal lockdown, uh, and you'll hear us explain more about the match uh, over there. So why waste any more time? Let's shoot it over to past tense Costa and <laughs> past tense Tom talking all things lethal lockdown 2009. Nine years old, 
years on from Russo's Revenge, the last War Games match that you had to watch. And But now, Russo is in a different company. And he's not in this match, but I, I smell his fingerprints all <laughs> over it. But I, I could be wrong. I could be wrong on that. But, you know, we're not going to talk too much about Russo today, I don't think, because... It's not really about him. This is a uh, a different match, and this is the lethal lockdown match from TNA in two thousand and nine. Mm. Uh, so, just to give a quick overview, I guess before I let you take take control and uh, give us your thoughts on everything. For anyone who doesn't know what TNA is and what lethal lockdown is, uh, TNA is a company started in two thousand two by Jeff Jarrett, bought by Dixie Carter, and it was basically. Um, I would. I don't want to say competition, but the only the closest thing to competition that WWE had after WCW went out of business. Yeah, in about two thousand and five and two thousand and six. I would yeah, say. it started to pick up some real steam around that time. Probably got some real notoriety once they started signing guys like Kurt Angle and Christian. Yes. Um, and then Which is come about around this time, right? About two thousand and eight, I think that was. Uh, well, I think Chris, I think Christian came over in 05, Angle in 06, but by 09, they were, uh, well, Angle was like the guy by 09, like him, Sting was there as well. Um, and then obviously about a year later, uh, 2010, Hogan came in and the, the very short lived reimagined Monday Night Wars uh, uh, yeah, restarted. Uh, but we won't be talking about that too much because again, <laughs> it's not about that. Uh, but yeah, this is 2009. It's the Lethal Lockdown match, which was basically TNA's take on the War Games match. However, instead of it being two rings in one giant cage, uh, this is uh, one ring, a six-sided ring, which was the staple of TNA, with a six sides of steel, as they called it, with a roof. And once the what would happen was, at intervals, as always, different competitors would come down. After all of the competitors were in the ring, the cage roof would lower, and attached to the roof is weapons, because gimmicks on top of gimmicks, and it stinks of Russo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's basically the match. Uh, the people in this match, it is uh, Kurt Angle's main event mafia, uh, and I'll let you break down like all the individuals, but it's the main event mafia versus uh, team... Uh, I can't remember who the captain actually was of the other team, I believe. Uh, Angle versus uh, Team Jarrett. That was it. It was Team Jarrett. There you go. Um, I, well, I knew Jarrett was on it. I couldn't remember who the captain so that, was. Yeah, in Team Jarrett, you've got uh, AJ Styles, Christopher Daniels, Jeff Jarrett, and Samoa Joe. Team Angle is uh, Booker T, Kevin Nash, and Kurt Angle, and Scott Steiner. Um, yeah, so I, so I guess... <clears throat> Uh, yes, I just take the lead from now. Yeah, was, uh, I believe I believe Sting as well was on uh, Team Jarrett. Was Sting in there? I think so. Was I wrong? No, no actually, no, Sting's no, not in no, this no, match. What are you on about? I only I watched this a few days one, ago, sorry. and I'm like, as my uh, my tired parent brain completely deleted. No, no, you're Sting right. You're right. It was, he, it yeah, was four was on four. <laughs> Ignore me. <laughs> yes, I will. Um, so, yeah, so the first in are Christopher Daniels and Kurt Angle. And the first thing I instantly thought is he wasn't called Christopher Daniels. He was called Daniels. So they did a classic WWE thing and dropped his his name. Uh, and he was just named by his last name. Uh, and the first thing I thought was, I love his handlebar moustache. 
<laughs> Which is Do you a think very that good. was uh, some foreshadowing? Like he knew Hogan was on his way. Oh yeah, I mean, it was very Hogan esque. Yeah, yeah, I, I was quite. Uh, it was. Mm, it was a look. It was a look. <laughs> Hopefully, it was Movember, and uh, he was uh, doing it for charity. <laughs> I don't think I don't it was a thing. So. But yeah, so this kind of match is a bit confused from the get go. Like I, I, I didn't know what was going on, and I was quite stunned that. Uh, Daniels actually started out wrestling Kurt Angle for most of the beginning. <laughs> and I was like, hmm. I didn't know who was the good guys, who were the bad guys. Because you Team Jarrett, who's, Jeff Jarrett is normally a heel, right? Angle, I think, was a good guy coming into TNA back in 2006. But I assumed he was the villain in this scenario. I was like, I had no clue what was going on. Um... And it wasn't until, so like next out was Booker T. He comes in and, you know, with his great, you know, WWE fake song, uh, which was, <laughs> it was close, but it, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, not what you'd expect, but it, it was a good ripoff. Uh, and then next out, AJ. And that's when I realized, because it's AJ Styles, of course, Jeff Jarrett was then, that's that's the that's the good guy team. That's the babyface team. And I was like, oh, okay, that's pe- okay, that's peculiar. But then that also, yeah, I was a bit, I was a bit taken aback so by the, that whole process. So, so far. the beginning, the beginning of the part, and like obviously, you know, you 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 didn't see the build up or anything like that. You're just watching it from a match. But yes. even if you're only tuning into a match from the beginning of a match and you know nothing about the background, surely the commentary should be able to provide some sort of a story for you to understand very quickly who's the good guy who's but did that not help at all for you no there was no kind of indication like of what story was going into it was all assumed that i should already know what's going on um so they assumed prior knowledge and the next note wrote uh, <laughs> note that i've written after aj comes in next and realizing that that's the babyface team i've put dot 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 i really hate these matches because it is it's just okay so then aj comes in and then just loads of moves happen like loads of moves happen but i understand why all the moves happen because you never guess who comes in next and that's scott steiner who uh who uh gingerly strolls to the ring and then performs a kind of almost double clothesline where he kind of mistimes the double clothesline, has to hit one and then the other first. Um, um, which, yeah. Um, I, I I was quite impressed, though, that Scott Steiner did manage to... I've got here written down, oh, my God, Scott Steiner does a Frankensteiner. The crowd pop massive. I pop. Well, well, here's the thing. Right? So I, I, don't get me wrong. I still pop, like... I say now that you don't really see Steiner on TV nowadays, but like say back then, oh nine, right? Mm. And he's in the later stages of his career. But whenever I would watch him in TNA and I'd see him bust out a Frankensteiner, I'd always pop because it's incredibly impressive because he's so big. And especially at that point in his career as well, where he's not got the best mobility in the world, it was quite, you know, quite a nice thing for him yeah. to pull out the bag. But True. the thing that always used to annoy me was when the commentators would like, he'd climb up tease it for a second and then hit it and the co- like Mike Tanay and Don West or Taz whoever was on commentary would always be like 
oh my god, we haven't seen him do that in years. It's like, mate, he did it last week. He does it in almost every match in TNA, like especially if it's a pay per view. Yeah, it's it Don West, just... right? The other one, and yeah, Don West throughout this whole time was shouting. I think it was Don West. Yeah, um, Don West to the shout. Steiner lines, not clotheslines. <laughs> Steiner lines. Because yeah. um, like... you need to know who's hitting them. <laughs> Um, and yeah, they, they are uh, the least impressive clothesline I think I've ever seen. So, you know, maybe that's what it means. Um, it, it, yeah, not to, to bury Scott Steiner's clothesline, but it, it was a bit... Uh, anyway, um, next thing it was Samoa Joe. Um, and then something happens where Samoa Joe is being spoken through a door by someone with a hood and it's never explained. Okay, and so... then and then <laughs> two minutes go by, and then oh no, he comes out anyway. So there's nothing that like, there's no callback to this person in a hood, or 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 like what what did we just watch, and how does that impact the match at this point? Are they booking for uh, the Monday show? So oh, okay, let me uh, let me break that one down for you because I actually remember this very well please, from the time. So. They had, I, first of all, I'm genuinely shocked that the first thing you didn't say about Samoa Joe was the fact that he was wearing his pajamas for this match. <laughs> um, <laughs> I did write that down, but I didn't think it was overly interesting, so I've not said it. But yes, yeah, he was this was his pajamas. This was when, so, so Samoa Joe had let, had been written off TV for a period of time. He'd been injured by Kurt Angle's squad, the main event mafia. And then he came back and they kind of repackaged him a bit where he's still Samoa Joe, but now he had uh, face paint, uh, like some tribal face paint and some like tribal looking baggy trousers uh, that look like Zubas. Um, And he had what they called his nation of violence. But (laughs) they were teasing that he had a new, like he had an advisor who was helping him on this nation of violence. And it was teased for weeks and weeks and weeks. And they teased it there. You're right. Like this person who you couldn't see and he's just giving Samoa Joe some advice. But then it leads to nothing on this show. However, it got revealed. I don't know if it was like a month later or if they longed it out for a couple of months, whatever it was. But at one of the pay-per-views, I remember he was wrestling, I think, Sting. And the person revealed themselves to be Taz. Mm. So Taz came in to TNA as Samoa Joe's manager, but then it only lasted like a month before they decided, you know what, we've got Taz, let's get Dom West off commentary and just put (laughs) Taz on commentary. So (laughs) Taz ended up as a commentator and a very good one. And uh, Dom West, unfortunately, ended up just being the merch seller for the rest of his career, I think, in TNA. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so that that was Taz, basically. And that was why Samoa Joe... Uh, started coming out wearing a towel over his head because that's what Taz did. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Mm, that's Yeah. The uh, yeah. Anyway, it's, it's so crazy. that was interesting. I, I was give a you good that. Pairing. I thought it was a good pairing though. They just did a it's just bad execution of getting them. You know, getting to that I point. I just didn't know what was going on. What's the point? Yeah. What's the, it was not didn't add anything to the match. It didn't. It just kind of confused everyone and then delayed the entrance. So I was just like, uh, that's like an earlier on cutscene thing. But yeah. Anyway, oh yes, here comes Kevin Nash, the smartest person in wrestling. That's what I've got written down. Uh, <laughs> well, we established this last time. Yes, he is. And I was just wondering as he was walking to the ring. How would he avoid being in this match? 
So at one point he breaks out into this really ginger jog and then goes, actually, no, I'm not going to jog. <laughs> <laughs> before he even gets to the ring and then i'm like oh my god look at uh, like his knees are not in a good place um but yeah he gets to the door and then joe kicks the door into kevin nash's face and i was like well that's how he's not going to get into the ring and then uh eventually i've got underneath that note like that's how he's not going to get into the ring was oh, wow, he actually got into the ring. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Kevin Nash was actually in the match for a period of time, which was great, and he took a, he took one or two bumps. Um, so, last maybe person... He's, maybe, he's not get, maybe he's not as smart in his old age. Maybe he's like, you know, one final run, brother. Yeah, maybe, maybe. You know, he hit all these classics, elbows in the corner, sidewalk slam, that sort of jazz. Yeah, big you squisher. Know, big squisher, that's it. The... Uh, <laughs> The uh, last out was uh, Jeff Jarrett, and I loved his matching jacket and biker trunks. I thought this was very 2009 kind of period of time where everyone wore biker trunks, uh, yep. and they were matching baby blue. I thought it was a very beautiful look. Um, trying to stay young and relevant, I thought. Um, I, d- I don't th- see. I, okay, while we're on the subject of Jeff Jarrett. What what's your take on Jeff Jarrett as a uh, as a wrestler? Because I don't think he gets enough love. Oh, I don't, I, I, don't get me wrong. I don't think he's you know. I don't think he's like the guy, like a Steve Austin or a Rock or whatever. But I always quite liked a bit of Jeff Jarrett. I admire his his willing his storyline. He's very storyline driven, and you can see that influence from his parents and he, like his his family definitely. Um, and I really enjoyed that aspect. He'd always kind of tried to find a story in something, but he was always in companies that were like, uh, that kind of didn't really do stories that well or a little bit naff. So I, I don't know. I never really connected with him too much. Um, great, great punches though. Yeah, maybe. I don't remember. I'm trying uh, to remember. Mem- he's a Memphis boy. They've all got great punches. But anyway, I'll let you carry on. Sorry, I've lost my train of thought. Yes, so the the finally, finally, the 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 cage lowers. Oh my god, this weapon's attached to the ceiling, um, and I put this is where the wrestling stops, uh, <laughs> because then they cut to this is what was really bad. I don't know why this. They thought this was a good idea. A six-way camera shot. How the hell do I know what's going on? There's, it was like a, you know, where they have two on two cameras. Like yeah, yeah, it's like the picture it on was picture. six. Like, how was I meant to know what was going on? And these, uh, yeah, and it was just chaos. Um, instantly, with less than 60 seconds, Kurt Angle climbs to the top. And of course, he's followed by AJ Styles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they do pretend they do some car <laughs> crash spots. They were never going to fall off the side. You know, because there's not a pickup truck underneath with hay on. Um... Well, actually, you know what? You, <laughs> say, you say that. <laughs> I'll, you know what? I'll let you finish, but I, I've got something to add there. But carry yeah, on. Yeah. And then after that, then Angle climbs down into the ring. The most sensible thing that he's done so far in the entire match. And this was the bit that got me by surprise. AJ jumps through the top of the cage, breaking through like the video game mm-hmm. and crashes on no one. So you've got Kurt Angle, Booker T, Scott Steiner, all refusing to catch him. And he goes, he he hits the cage, barely missing his own head on the beam. 
you know, and no one is willing to catch him. He falls through the middle on of them all, and I'm, I've hit just hit rant on my notes. I'm like, come on, boys, really? That was incredible. I pop massive because I did not see it coming, and I'm just like, fuck you, boys, for not catching AJ. You bastards. He's nearly killed himself or decapitated himself on a beam doing this spot, and you were not willing to catch him. Um. Yes, I need a breath. Well, yeah. Well, it was it was an incredible spot. Um. Yeah, they probably should have caught him. Just <laughs> the middle of them. I just like that's such bad etiquette as wrestlers. You want to look <laughs> after people. Like I've like I've never dropped anyone. Like I've always made m- more than effort of trying to grab someone, even if it ends up hurting me more. I would rather that than them hit the concrete. And I was like, you buggers. Um, well, on, on the subject of going back to what you said, uh, they were obviously not going to fall off the top of the cage. Um, there was actually another, I think it might even have been the year before this one. Cause angle was in that one too. And again, it was angle and AJ on top of the, on top of the cage and angle literally just threw him off the top of it. And, and AJ did like a front flip onto a pile of people. Jesus. Yeah. It's pretty you... spectacular. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's crazy. I remember the moment being really iconic because angles like on top of the cage going absolutely mental after he's done it, like he's bright red screaming and he's like flipping everyone, the bird. Oh, brilliant. (laughs) He went like full Steve Austin mode. It was great. Um, But cool, yeah. So AJ's now fallen through. Yeah. Um, Take us to to the finish, brother. Yeah, everyone hits their finishers. Uh, And then there's kind of this weird, like, Jeff Jarrett. Oh, yeah, that's it. Jeff Jarrett hits Booker T for the guitar. And there's this whole, will he, won't he hit AJ instead. Uh, And then, yeah, Jeff Jarrett's team wins. And... That's it. And then the... Oh, that's it. No, no. Uh, it's not it. The whole arena blacks out. This music plays that no one even knows what it is. So no one pops. And then all of a sudden, Bobby Lashley walks out. Yep. And and, and the crowd go mild. And uh, <laughs> there's close-ups and storylines for come back and watch us whenever we're on in the week. And that's it. Uh, yeah. So this this is this is a pretty uneventful an uneventful match to be honest with you. Um but Did you get this match? <laughs> well, I thought it'd be interesting to like look at different types of war games match for different companies and you know this was one of the better ones in TNA but uh, I figured while you've just mentioned him a quick Bobby Lashley in TNA retrospective just for lols. So Lashley turns up at lockdown. Yeah. He ends up feuding uh, he literally, he wasn't on TV again for like a few months. Like they just said, oh, Lashley's going to be in TNA. And then he didn't turn up again for ages. Why? Because he was doing MMA. Because Yeah, because he was doing MMA. He had a deal with um, his MMA company. Who I think he was at Bellator at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a deal with them that he could do TNA. But he, yeah, he turned up for the pay-per-view and then wasn't seen again mm-hmm. for months. Then wow. he turned up. Uh, when Angle and his squad were beating up on like Foley and a couple of other people. And uh, he came out, teased that he was going to join Kurt Angle and beat up on him too. But then he turned on them and he's a baby face. Uh, he then, but then Kurt Angle, obviously, you know, he attacks Angle. But then Angle's too busy feuding with, you know, the main eventers in TNA, like Sting and AJ Styles. So 
Bobby Lashley needs someone to feud with. So here's Scott Steiner for you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And Lashley and Steiner feud uh, for a bit. And the whole feud is basically based on because just because Lashley, you know, wanted to get his wife a payday at the time. His I don't know if they're still together now, but his wife, uh, who was Crystal, I don't know if you remember Crystal from WWE. No. Um, but yeah, she she came in and basically the feud was built off of Steiner uh, saying that she should be with him because he's a real man and. Not long after that, Hogan and Bischoff came to TNA and Lashley left. And that was that. But then he came back years later and actually had uh, what I've heard is a very good run. Um, You know, a few years ago before he rejoined the Fed. But yeah, the the early Lashley in TNA is quite a a funny little event. Yeah. But anyway, so lockdown 2009. What were your overall thoughts? What did you like? What did you dislike? And what are you giving it out of five stars? I put final thoughts. Why did I bother? Um, <laughs> you know, it was, just, it was, you know, hard work to the point where there is a break where Ang- I love AJ Styles. I've always thought he was great, even when he was in TNA, you know. But there's a point where he came out and then I realized that the babyface team that I thought was is the wrong way around. I kind of paused and didn't watch it for a month. Because I was just like, oh, I just, I'm done with just TNA and this style of match. I'm hating this style of match at the minute. Why, well, like, like we, you know, I can't wait until we're done doing these matches because they're just, they're just getting worse. Like it was funny last last time because they, it was it was like comically dreadful, but this one was just dull. You know, like it was it was. Oh. Yeah, well. uh, yeah. <laughs> I just give up. I, I'm, you know, I've just give it a star. Like, uh, pff, I know what were we? One, um, star. one star. I like. Don't even bother. Don't even waste your time. Just, just, just. There's probably if you want to go watch T- TNA Lethal Lockdown, there was probably an X Division match that was like, you know, ten times better than this. Because that was where the, where the actual good matches were. Yeah, yeah. Oh. The X Division was pretty hot at that point. Um, yeah. So, Tom Dawkins did not enjoy this match, and oh, he has advised it. you to not bother suffering it. However, if you would, it like felt to like work. It. I feel like I should be paid for this because that was this one was hard work. I disagree. Um, <laughs> but if you would like to suffer through this and see what uh, Tom is talking about, then you can check this match out uh, on the Impact Plus app, uh, or I actually think they put this um, up on YouTube for free. On YouTube. So, yeah. uh, yeah, don't, you know, go watch it for free because, you know, free is always better. Um, any final words on this before we, before we wrap this thing up? Done with this. It gets better. I promise you've only got one more to go. Yeah. Thanks. I man. promise you it gets better. So that's it for another edition of The Culture Exchange. Be back with us for our next episode here where I will be discussing a cultural piece given to me by Tom Dawkins himself. And then the following episode after that, we wrap up War Games and we head to NXT. It's going to be awesome. Darcy, what is next on the agenda? 
Well, I think everyone's probably had enough of us chit-chatting. So why don't we head over now to the podcast with the voice of British wrestling. It's Dave Bradshaw. So I guess the best thing to kind of start with is, I mean, we've all been in lockdown for a long time. Uh, how have you been occupying your time in terms of like re- filling the void of wrestling? Because I know like we spoke, uh, we spoke off air a second ago about how you've been going out for a lot of walks. But is there anything involving wrestling that you've had kind of either going on or just been watching wrestling, stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, it's been... Um... Yeah, it, obviously it's been a little bit dry <laughs> in terms of work. There hasn't been a lot a lot going on, certainly in England. But I've been fortunate that two of the companies I work for are uh, GWF, German Wrestling Federation, which is based in Berlin, and HCW, Hungarian Championship Wrestling in Budapest. Mm-hmm. And their lockdowns at different times have been you know, relaxed a little bit. So maybe since sort of August, I've had I've done one Hungarian show and one... I well, know two, two I think German shows, um, you know, all in post production. Obviously, just kind of screaming at a screaming at a computer screen with my headphones on from my bedroom, but um, but still, it's you know, it's something like I, I just miss it so you know, I miss it so much. <laughs> like I'm just like I'll take I'll take anything post production, whatever. I just need to do some commentating, you know. Yeah, I mean, I imagine that more than anything, you miss doing commentary with me. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, to be honest, I'm not quite sure how I ended up on this show. I, 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 have, <laughs> I have fired my agent uh, after after he made this booking. So, um, but I'd already apparently I'm contractually committed now. So here we are. Ah, oh, well, you know, yeah. I, I, you know, at the end of the day, I think we can both agree to disagree that I'm the best of all of your fellow commentators, and you have many. Um, but at the end of the day, there's no one quite like Costa and I, you know, I'll stand by my statement. You are hands down the second best Bradshaw in pro wrestling. Well, well, thank you. And I, I agree that there is certainly no one like you. I think <laughs> on, that, on that point, we can agree. Absolutely. Um, okay. So, uh, you know, our personal agreements and disagreements aside, uh, give our listeners a little insight here because you're probably like the first person that we've had on this podcast that uh, isn't an, like an active wrestler of any sort. Uh, so for you, going like way back, I suppose, to the beginning, what were like your first earliest memories of wrestling and how did it kind of come to be that you, I guess, fell in love with the the business? Uh, it was half term, I remember very well, like May half term of, of 91. And so I was uh, eight years old and I went to my cousin's house. Actually, my dad's whole family live up in the Yorkshire Dales right in the middle of nowhere, but they had Sky and we didn't. And we went there. My cousin was like, um, oh, she was watching some, you know, some something I'd never seen before. And I was like, what's this? It turned out it, it was WWF's uh, UK Rampage 91. And it was... The reason that they were so into it was because my aunt uh, fancied the Texas tornado. Oh, uh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so, so she was fully encouraging my cousin to keep watching these, you know, watching this VHS they'd taped off Sky Movies the other few days earlier of, uh, of yeah, of UK Rampage, which was, you know, part of, I think it was the second 
WWF UK tour, possibly. Um, and uh, so the first match I ever saw actually was was Kerry Von Erich against Ted DiBiase, who had Sherry in his corner, which it, it was a count out, it was a rubbish finish, but it was uh, in terms of like introductions to a proper good baby face versus a classic heel. I'm like, okay, I can understand why I got into it off the back of off the back of that. But yeah, I mean, I sat down, watched this thing for five minutes, and I was like what is this this is this is something and then uh, that was that and then watched the rest of that show for three hours at my cousin's house and then and then and then i was hooked into the world that we are that we both work in forever so when uh so when you're watching and stuff as you're growing up who were some of like the main guys that you looked at because obviously we all know you as a commentator now but was was it the commentators that kind of sucked you in or was it straight away the wrestlers themselves no you know i never i was never never really paid attention to commentators like at that time i mean obviously when i was older i was like oh yeah jr's wicked um but at the time i was just i hadn't had any thoughts or ambitions about being a commentator back then or anything like that and i was just a a fan i, I went to SummerSlam 92 at wembley uh, oh wow and, I had a big old uh, Ultimate Warrior banner. You know, I actually, uh, I actually feel really bad about SummerSlam '92 because I went to Wembley Stadium and cheered or cheered against, you know, booed Randy Savage and Bret Hart. <laughs> and I'm like, you were probably <laughs> two of my top five wrestlers of all time. I actually met Bret Hart a few years ago, uh, did an interview with him, and first thing I said to him was, "I'm really sorry, I booed you." In. Well, I mean, in fairness, he was against Davy Boy. It's like the the big the biggest show ever in British wrestling history, and you know the British guys in that you got to cheer the British guy, surely. Well, Brett was like, he goes, he goes, yeah, that's okay, brother. I think I think seventy percent of the crowd booed me that night, and I'm like thinking, <laughs> and ninety. <laughs> I didn't say that bit out loud, but. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, so, okay, so like these are some of the guys that you were watching and stuff. So what was there, as you got older, was there ever an interest to like actually become a wrestler or was it always, like you said, you weren't overly paying attention to commentary when you were younger, but then obviously, you, you know, you realise years later, uh, like most of us, I think, did that, oh my God, Jim Ross is awesome and all these other commentators who you were listening to. So when you kind of decided you wanted to get involved in pro wrestling, did you have a plan of how to do it or was it you know, uh, try out as a wrestler, then it didn't work. Or what, what was your kind of story, I guess? I'm, I'm barely able to plan, you know, a week ahead in my life. <laughs> so uh, planning, you know, having some roadmap to what I wanted to do in wrestling would be unlikely. But um, no, I mean, I, I stayed into wrestling, but you, you know how it was like in 91, 92, it was, it was this, you know, it was one of the trends that swept through the playgrounds of great britain hogan i actually i actually don't know that i was i was born in 92 well but I, <laughs> I am i'm far younger than you yes well thank you for reminding me that but i'm You're sure awesome. you i'm sure you've heard of the first wave of popularity of, of wwf in, uh, in the uk which was in that hogan savage warrior era uh, and then it kind of quick or within a year or so it kind of went out of fashion again but uh i was still watching it i i, I was watching wwf throughout the you know the uh the, the years that we considered not to be such a great product in the mid 90s and all that kind of stuff and then happily for me in the sort of late 90s around 2000 uh it became popular again <laughs> so like this thing that i was into 
was like cool again, you know, with Stone Cold and The Rock and the Hardys and uh, Foley, Triple H, all, all those guys. So it, it was, um, you know, by then I was 17, what, 16, 17. And, uh, excuse me, and then I went to, um, I, I decided that, I went to WrestleMania X7, by the way. Oh, wow. Uh, I won tickets to that. Uh, how did how did you win tickets? What did you do? Through um, oh, you don't want to know what I did. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, no, through THQ, who made the SmackDown games. Um, I think it was you know, the previous Christmas. Um, Smack, I think it was SmackDown Two was coming out, and I went on their website or whatever to see, well, probably to see what wrestlers were going to be in the game because I was planning on getting it for Christmas. And I think there was a. I don't really even remember. I think there was a page on there, like free prize draw to go to a wrestling event of your choice. Um, and so I I think you literally just had to put in your name and email and click send. Um, oh, wow. And then I got a letter in like February 01, something like that, saying, uh, and I've forgotten all about it, you know, saying, oh, you recently entered a prize draw um, on the THQ website. There were 10,000 entries and I'm pleased to say you were the winner. So call me on this number. And we'll work out which event you want to go to, you know, signed THQ's UK marketing manager or something. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, so I was like, what? Um, and so I, I phoned him like immediately within five minutes of opening the letter. And, and he was like, yeah, you know, we had a nice chat. And then he's like, have you had, had any thoughts about what event you want to go to? And I was like, WrestleMania. <laughs> you know, <which> was, <laughs> by this point was only a month away. So he was like, yeah, I thought you might say that. I don't know if we're going to be able to get tickets, but he did. He got me so it was like a pair of tickets so i took my best mate uh and we we you know we had three flights three hotel 200 dollars spending money each i think nice um and so it was like a totally free trip we were right at the back we were like the back row of the you know furthest back block but i didn't and i didn't care it was amazing um so you know by so that that helped as well so like wrestling was once again sort of the uh center of my universe by the time i was 18 19 wow, um, that's awesome man um and then i thought and then i had the genius idea again no planning ahead and not paying attention to the fact that i don't have an athletic bone in my body but i suddenly decided on a whim in early 2002 oh i'm gonna go train to be a wrestler uh and i looked up uh, you know the internet was around obviously but it wasn't quite as like and there certainly weren't as many training schools as there are now Mm -hmm. uh, but I looked up and found there was one in Sittingbourne in Kent, which was called NWA UK Hammerlock. Yeah. Um, and so I, uh, uh, which was the same one that trained a lot of the, like, like Doug Williams and um, uh, Jody Fleisch went there, the, a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of the early, sort of the, the stars of the FWA. Yeah. Um, the, which was, you know, the big UK indie in the um, early 2000s. So I went there um, and then quickly, uh, by the way, I trained with a young 14, I was, so I was 18. I trained with a young 14 year old by the name of Zach Sabre Jr. Oh, wow. Um, and quickly worked out within about six weeks that I was absolutely appalling and had, you know, no fitness, no, no gymnastic ability, nothing. Um, and then as it happened in spring of, I went to the FWA Academy actually a couple of times as well in Portsmouth, which was run by Mark Sloan. And so I met met people like, people like uh, Paul Burchill while they were training. And so I actually kind of worked out standing me in good stead because a lot of the people who I ended up commentating on years later, you know, I'd met 
years before, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I gave up <laughs> very, very <laughs> so quickly. I... And I was, I, was, I, was on, I was in the middle of my gap year between, you know, school and university. And I was due in sort of April time, March or April to go, this is, you know, 2002, to be going um, out to meet three of my mates from school for a, a, a road trip around the US. Um, and so I um, went to that, you know, after about six weeks of training and then never never went back to training because I think with the time to reflect while on the open road of the United States, you know, I realised that I was dreadful. Wow. So, so if, like, you, you, you go there, you try out, because you see this a lot, actually, in wrestling. Like, a lot of people, I think it takes a lot to, for people to realise, like, whether or not they've actually, you know, whether it's actually for them or not. Because, you know, as much as, you know, we can all say, you know, if it's your, if it's your dream to do something, you should go forth with it. Uh, but to a certain extent, sometimes you do have to kind of like acknowledge that, you know, maybe this actually isn't for me. So when you've kind of come to that realization of, OK, maybe the, the in-ring side isn't for me. Did you know, did you know early on that I still want to be involved in wrestling or did, did that, did the commentary thing come a lot later? Uh, it came a lot later. I mean, first of all, I would say I agree with you totally about, about people training I you know I do think there is uh, uh, a responsibility on people who want to train to have some sort of you know I say this as someone who certainly did not have this I think you have to have a minimum sort of level of physical fitness when you're going to get into wrestling training because otherwise once you get into you know doing things that are dangerous and sort of high risk moves on each you know if you're if you're exhausted then you're going to put your opponent at risk so I'm not trying to dissuade anyone from training but I think if you're a total couch potato who's never never enjoyed your PE lessons and hasn't been to the gym since then you know you need to do a bit of uh, background work before you <laughs> before you go and train um, but no I mean I went to um, university that autumn and while I was at university I got into student radio which I'd never planned to but I had a, one of my um, housemates was doing a show on the student radio station and then um, I became involved in, in that and ended up as like the head of production for the station in my third year, as well as a DJ and stuff. Um, uh, I actually, you know, what, this is my claim to fame. Um, I gave I'm, I gave Greg James, who's now the Radio One Breakfast show host, his first ever radio show. OK, there you go. Um, Greg's a good friend of mine, but he was a first year when I was a third year uh, and uh, I was the one who listened to his demo disc mini disc back in those days Sony mini disc remember them uh, I recall them I don't remember actually ever having many of them but no. yeah <laughs> I don't know what what gap in the market they possibly filled but um, anyway and then uh, gave him his his first show which is probably my finest achievement in student radio is letting someone actually good uh, get you know get their first foot on the uh, on the ladder but uh but anyway you know i left uni in uh or left my uni town in sort of 2006 7 and by 2008 i was kind of missing being behind a microphone and, yeah. and obviously having done weekly shows for two or three years by then and been involved in you know learning a lot about how to broadcast and all that kind of stuff i had developed i think you know some some skills in it and I was like, oh, I really want to, I was still into wrestling. So I was like, I really kind of want to do something in wrestling. And, and actually, maybe I could do commentating. 
you know. Mm -hmm. And I think the other good thing about having done all this stuff in student radio was I knew what my strengths were in broadcasting as well. So like I know that if I when I was doing a, a radio show with with a couple of my mates, like the other two would be the ones who were like, you know, really like joking around and messing around, and I was the one who held it together, yeah. like and made sure that the next track got played and that we stuck roughly to to time so i so i sort of knew that uh i'd be my best fit would be as a like a play-by-play -play commentator yeah so so your role with them is a lot like your role with me i'm the fun one that everyone loves and you're the boring old fart but, i mean that's one way of putting it but I don't, <laughs> when you say everyone loves you uh, can you name one person except except your own family uh, I was going to say my mum um, <laughs> caught me off guard there. Uh, Malik, there you go. Malik loves me. Does he though? Yes. I've yes. spoken to Malik many times and I'm not sure that he would endorse that reference. You may have spoken to Malik, but Malik has never spoken to you. So don't don't try that one. Well, we fell out because he is an Arsenal fan and I'm a Tottenham fan. Uh, you, have so I ever told you what I, who I support? I don't know if you even understand football. I, I mean, I don't. To, uh, to be honest, I'm not really a football fan. But whenever, whenever somebody says to me, "Okay, well, if you have, if if I had like a gun to my head situation, I had to pick a team, it would be Liverpool." Well, of course it would, because they're the champions. That is that is well, the that, typical, that isn't the reason, but sure. <laughs> that is the typical Costa statement. You've gone with whoever currently is the best team. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Oh dear, but anyway, sorry. Continue. What was I saying? I can't remember what I was talking about. Uh, so you were the sh you were the play-by-play -play guy. You liked the play-by-play. -play. Yeah. So anyway, I, I looked up. Um, I was living in London, back in London by then, so I looked up local promotions. Um, found a promotion called IPW UK that was running shows in Bromley, which wasn't very far away. Um, and so I emailed them and was like, "Can I? Do you need a commentator?" Basically, and they're like, well. Not right now, but we might in a few months. Why don't you start coming to our monthly shows at the Bromley Civic Hall and we'll see how it goes. So I, I went as a fan for about four or five months. And then that summer of 2008, I got a, uh, they said, right, we, we need a new play-by-play -play guy. Uh, it was, I was, there was a, a vacancy because Steve Linsky, who was, who you may know, very famous, uh, he's a former wrestler, but mo perhaps most famous in recent years as a referee. He was um, he was moving away from being the play-by-play -play guy for IPW. So Dean As, who was the color guy, needed a uh, you know he needed a play-by-play -play guy. Um, and so yeah, there were auditions, and it was basically in a in a uh, recording studio in in an industrial estate in Dagenham in East London. And I went and commentated on a match, you know, in front of a TV screen. Um, with Dean and obviously it, w it went well because they called me back and said yeah cool do you want to commentate the September show so I did that's great so you know you've just started out in pro wrestling and doing commentary I imagine that one of the main sort of influences in someone who you kind of looked at in terms of you know getting ideas of how to be a play-by-play -play guy was would be someone like Jim Ross yeah. um, but who, who was were there any other kind of commentators who you looked at for not necessarily advice, because obviously they were on more on a mainstream sort of level, so you didn't have that contact with them. But was there any other commentary styles that kind of stood out to you at that time? Um, yeah, I mean, the first thing, JR was my absolute role model in, in pro wrestling commentating. 
uh, you know, especially in those early days. And I think the, the risk more than anything was that you didn't just sound like a cheap JR impersonator. You know, yeah. you, could, you could adopt all his mannerisms and if, if you, you know, if you weren't careful, you could end up just sounding exactly like him. So I made a, a conscious choice to try and, you know, kind of um, explore other, obviously I'd heard other commentators through the years as well, but to explore the styles of other play-by-play guys in wrestling and then also to listen to some commentate some commentary from other sports as well and sort of pick up because you can learn some useful skills about how to phrase things and how to you know adjust the tone in your voice from watching football commentary for example or boxing commentary or various other things so so yeah I mean I just tried to not be too JR centric because I think I would have been if if uh you know, if I hadn't been consciously aware of it. Um, so I tried to sort of, you know, listen to things through the year. I mean, I listened to some Tony Schiavone. I listened to from like WCW days. I would listen to Gordon Soley, um, even Vince, you know, Vince McMahon's mm-hmm. WWF, WWF commentary, Gorilla Monsoon, certainly. Uh, and then, yeah, like I say, you know, I'm a football fan, so I would listen to some football stuff and mentally take notes while I was watching football and, uh, yeah, some boxing and, and all kinds, yeah. Uh, so in terms of, like, guys that were on the scene at the time, was there any kind of people who you could actually go to for advice? Because obviously this, you know, you'd, ha- you'd had the radio experience, but this is a kind of, it, it's not too different, but it, it's different in the sense that you're, rather than just talking about music and uh, or current events and things, you have to specifically talk about kind of what's going on in the ring. Was there anyone who you were able to kind of get good advice from around that time? Yeah, I mean, uh, Dean A.S. was, was as I say, was the first person I really commentated with regularly. Uh, and he was very generous with his advice. Even things like how to conduct yourself back in the locker room. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't know about the whole ritual of how you shake everyone's hand when you arrive and you shake everyone's hand when you leave, which to an outsider, I think, probably sounds quite weird. But that's how things have, you know, traditionally operated in, in wrestling. So first time I was on a show, he made sure that he helped introduce me to everyone. But then also um yeah during the show just kind of uh because we weren't it wasn't live or anything we were recording a show for dvd release so there was a break in recording between each match so he was giving me uh giving me tips and everything and saying yeah you know encouragement as well which is important so yeah you've got you doing well um i kept asking him if there's anything else i could be doing differently and and yeah he was really really helpful from the beginning i sort of always say he's the yoda to my Luke Skywalker, which is a bit arrogant because that implies that I'm Luke Skywalker in my own. Would that head. make Would that make me your Darth Vader? No, you, I don't think you're important enough to be Darth Vader. Oh I think, wow! I think you'd be like, uh, who's that? Uh, the guy who drives in the pod race and then just explodes. Mate, I I I can't oh. stand Star Wars. These are all oh. lost on me. I know the main characters. I don't I don't know all the. The details. We've hit football and Star Wars. <laughs> I'm really pleased with how this is going. Oh <laughs> uh, Well, okay. So you, you're now into commentary and everything. So like one of the things I think that would maybe help some people out there who are listening to this, because um, obviously we mentioned earlier, like, you know, you, you figured out early on that the actual physical side of wrestling wasn't for you. Uh, so for people out there who might be listening that might also have that sort of same mentality but want to be involved in pro wrestling... Like, what advice would you give them as to, you know, finding other avenues in the business and how, what the best way, I guess, is to kind of get into that? Uh, someone asked me this recently and I said, 
what I'll say to you now, which is that you you have to be a little bit honest with yourself about what you bring to the table, I think. So, for example, if you do want to be a wrestler, but you're, you know, you're a skinny kid who's five foot five or something, like, okay, you can be a wrestler, of course you can, but you're not going to be Brock Lesnar. You know, that's just not, mm-hmm. it's not going to happen. So you've got to work out what can I... I'm not even saying you can't be a main eventer or anything. I'm just saying that can't be your style. Like if your hero is Brock Lesnar, but your build and your size and you know everything everything physically is working against you, then you've got to think, okay, well what what are my skills? You know, what what do I have the beginnings of a skill in that I could develop? Um and it's the same with it's the same with, you know, out of the ring roles as well. Like as I say, I think one of the apart from having Sort of gained confidence through doing student radio one of the main things it taught me was was the role i naturally fall into when i'm broadcasting and the fact that i stayed involved in student radio for those three years showed me that i was passionate about broadcasting you know so i was like it was once i once i put the two things together i was like oh i miss being behind a microphone and i really want to do stuff in wrestling again then you can see it's not much of a leap you know even for a brain as slow as mine to be like oh wait that's what I should do but for other people it will be different so you've got to think are you someone who maybe would be good behind a microphone for short periods and hyping something up but wouldn't be good having to hold your concentration doing that for three hours well then maybe you're a ring announcer you know or or what if you're um I don't know what if your skills suggest that you'd be really good as a referee you know like there's there's various different roles you know a lot of people get into other things in wrestling through being photographers you know if photography is their passion or or whatever so you've got to it, it, it's not to say that you will always be stuck in that one role because as you develop in the industry you might find you know other things that people want to use your skills for but mm. you do have to think you know in order to get your foot in the door you have to think okay well what why why would a promoter you know pick me for to do something over someone else it's like what where do i have a head start what are my you know what are my skills yeah i I think you're completely right it's about knowing kind of what your skills are i think i think I, i don't know if you'll agree with this but i think it is really important for a lot of people at least if you don't find like if if you try one thing and it doesn't click straight away try some other things within that industry whether it's wrestling or you know whatever other vocation in life you're trying it's good to try different areas of it because then you never know something might just suddenly click um like for me just off personal experience i've tried almost i think i've done almost every role there is in wrestling at some point from in ring to refereeing to commentary to announcing and i've in a way i've kind of enjoyed all of them to some capacity but I think for me, like the, my main two of all, like that I've always enjoyed the most is commentary and in ring. Um, but it's going to be different for everybody. So I think it's yeah, I think you're completely right. It's about you know kind of figuring out what your strengths are and what it is that makes you different and what you can bring to the table. Yeah, you have to you have to think. What I'm saying essentially is it's not just about what you want to be in your own head. You know what I mean? Like yeah. In our own heads, we might all want to be world champion, but not everyone on the show can have can have that role. In fact, only one person can. So you've got to think, all right, well, where would I, where do I most comfortably fit into this cast of characters 
whether it's you know an on-screen role or, or whatever like what's the what's my what's my thing um and like just in terms of actually getting like for someone who is trying to get into the business from a non-wrestling point of view what do you have any kind of advice as to the best ways to go about doing that because obviously you mentioned earlier you uh you sent off uh i believe you sent an email to uh the ipw guys uh do you think Obviously, you know, times have changed that so like people people still email, but you know, it's it's a little bit different where there's so many different promotions out there now. Do you think it's a lot harder to get in the business from a non wrestling point of view than it was back when you were sort of breaking in? Honestly, I have no idea because it's the scene is just so unrecognizable from what it was twelve or so years ago when I first did it. That I, I in terms of like, is it easier or harder? I'm I'm really not sure. I mean, on, on one level, I'd like to say it's easier because there's more promotions out there. But on another level, the the, the scene has grown, right? The British scene is, is you know, there's debates going on about whether it's going into a slump at the moment. But it, basically, over the past few years, we've had a real boom period. And so there's, that's got a lot more eyes on British wrestling. And so therefore, there's probably a lot more people wanting to be commentators and referees and and all that kind of or wrestlers you know than there were um in 2008 so it's it's hard to uh it's hard to give sort of um specific advice for what to do with the scene as it as as the lay of the land is nowadays but i would say things that i think will never uh, go out of fashion in the, in that sense are like showing first of all having the guts to kind of make that first contact like that mm-hmm. sounds crazy but some people are oh, we want to be a wrestling commentator or a wrestler or a, you know but never go to a training school or never send that email asking and if you don't ask then you'll never nothing will ever happen for you but the other thing is sort of showing enthusiasm you know so as i say when i when i was uh, first in contact with ipw it was like well we don't need a commentator right now but why don't you start coming to our shows you know so i I did. I made it, went as a fan and sort of, sort of tried to be as uh, as involved as as I could and got to know all the storylines and and etc. And then even once I was a commentator, I sort of thought, okay, well, how else can I be useful? You know, because I even if people think I'm good at what I do, I'm, I'm still just a voice. You know, I'm replaceable. So it's like, well, maybe I, I'm quite good at writing. I think so. I sort of said, well, what what if I do like a show you know the shows we were doing were only monthly then so I was like what if I do like a monthly column for the website kind of like a blog you know like in character sort of saying why I'm excited about all the matches coming up and what my reaction was to you know the dastardly deeds of whatever the heels did in that last show or whatever so so I ended up doing things like that like, I mean I even did stuff like they came to sort of rely on me a little bit for sort of things I remember um one of the promoters a few few months in goes, could you go through all of our website and go through all of our shows from the last five, five years that we've been in existence and come up with win-loss records for everyone? Uh, I was like, <laughs> right, like, that sounds miserable. But I, <laughs> but I was like, yep, yes, I can. Um, you know, and so I did. And, and as I say, the more ways you make yourself helpful and sort of indispensable, the better. Yeah, definitely, 100%. Um, so moving into kind of like one of the things I wanted to touch on with you is, so if anyone is listening that does ever want to get into commentary, 
I want to talk about different commentary styles a little bit with you because this is something that I don't think people kind of discuss enough because obviously you hear people talk all the time about their favorite kinds of wrestlers and you know they whether it's you know a powerhouse like a Brock Lesnar or a high flyer like a Will Ospreay like there's all these different styles of wrestlers I think the styles of commentary kind of go unnoticed a lot of the time um because obviously you're so into what's going on in the ring that you kind of forget what you're listening to sometimes. Yeah. So, I mean, we've talked about Jim Ross a lot. So obviously Jim Ross is somebody who, you know, both you and I would say is top of the list of, you know, wrestling commentators and commentary styles. But then I think you kind of get the, the main two, I think for me in terms of different styles of particularly play by play is you've kind of got the modernized WWE style of commentary where it's more, uh, storytelling and uh, putting over, you know, advertisers and things of that nature, as opposed to necessarily everything that's specifically going on in the ring. And then you've got the more sports-style commentary, where it's just, you know, the kind of old-school style of calling exactly what's going on in the ring and being helping the audience follow it. If, for example, if they're not actually watching it, if they're just for whatever reason, you know, not able to see it on their television at the time. I'm not sure. But uh, what kind of what kind of different styles of commentary do you kind of enjoy the most? And uh, yeah, what, what, what kind of advice do you give in terms of that? Well, I would say, as I say, in, in 2008, at that time, I, I'd spent so long watching Jim Ross that that was my main influence. But over time, you do you do sort of spread your wings a little bit and and sort of find other people you like other other styles and it, it also depends who you're working with and what the product is as well mm. so like when i did you know i did what culture pro wrestling which became defiant wrestling from uh, 2016 to 2019 and um in the at least in the sort of second half of that period i, I was working with james r kennedy who was um the color commentator there um and we have this sort of uh people say we're like uh, uh, an old married couple you know what i mean like we just bicker all the time but but there's a sort of uh, uh i sort of realized it kind of developed organically but i i realized fairly early on i think uh, james probably did as well that it, it it there's a sort of a monsoon heenan i'm not I'm not trying to say we're as good as them but you know there's a sort of uh that was the kind of dynamic like yeah him being an outrageous Sort of egomaniac and and me kind of being oh will you behave sort of, sort of thing so i kind of leaned into that and started watching a lot more monsoon and heenan stuff uh, and sort of thinking okay well how can we maximize this because people seem to be enjoying that that on-screen banter so it's like okay well let's let's play into this as much as we can whereas um but occasionally with 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 them even with with what culture we did a different style of show. They, they were mostly very storyline based. So it made sense for me to be a sort of typical baby face, I, I guess, sports entertainment style is if we want to call it that as opposed mm. to sort of sports style. Um, but when they did, I don't know if you remember, they did something called the pro wrestling world cup in yep. 2017, which was a big 64 man knockout tournament with, you know, sort of qualifying rounds for, wrestlers from japan and mexico and usa and all over um and we did it's one of one of james's first shows was the japanese qualifiers where the whole vibe we were told specifically by by the producers was to be a lot more sort of sports focused 
you know, and calling it like a sport, kind of like they they are more sort of they lean towards doing that in Japan quite often, you know. Yeah. Um, which was only sort of required a little bit of tweaking for for, for what I do, but for but for the color commentator James R. Kennedy in this case, that's a big that's a big change because he's used to being this brash sort of Bobby Heenan style antagonist to me and then he's got to sort of tone that down and become kind of like a, an analyst mm. in a sort of neutral sort of sporting way I, I, one of the guys who's really really good at that is Matt Stryker who I've worked with a few times for uh, at what culture Matt Stryker is the perfect like sort of analyst style color commentator um but it's an entirely different skill to being a heel color commentator. So, yeah, it, it's there are lots of different styles, and it it does largely depend on um, on on the company you're working for and what what they want. I, I would say there's maybe like like I kind of just hinted at there's slightly less variation for play by play mm. because it's because what you need to do is essentially the same. You know, put over the storyline to whatever extent there is a storyline. But also kind of tell the story of the match, call the action, you know, explain, oh, this guy's working on the arm. He's probably doing that because that's his finishing move, you know, his finishing move is an arm submission um, or, or whatever. But but yeah, I mean, for color commentator, there's all sorts of variations and it's kind of night and day what the different roles can be. Yeah, definitely. And like just in terms of like personal preference, is there a particular style that you like enjoy doing more or enjoy listening to more? Um, I think I, I like sports is in terms of working with a partner, a commentary partner, like sports style is easier, particularly if it's someone you're new with and you don't have that like natural chemistry yet. Yeah. Because you don't need it like for sports. You just need to be able to at least not talk over each other and work out when each other is going to speak. But you know, you're kind of letting letting the the story tell itself. Whereas, like with with a sort of more face heel commentary dynamic, you you kind of need to be quick on your feet. You know, thinking of comebacks. If the heel play by uh, heel color commentator says something ridiculous, you know, I need to have a quick comeback. You know, where like, and so it's um, it's. I would say when it works well, I enjoy the probably enjoy the face heel stuff more, but there's also more scope for that to go wrong. Yeah. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> if, like, if, if there's just no banter, you know, if there's no sort of, you know what I mean? If there's no, if you can tell that there's not really a relationship between the play by play and the color guy, then it's, it, it can just sound a bit stunted and awkward. Yeah, I think it is as well. It's a, it's a credit to you, actually, as a play-by-play guy, because when you're doing that kind of commentary, especially like like just from my own experience as being the color guy who's giving you shit on commentary, like you can get so kind of lost sometimes in the enjoyment that you're having with each other in the banter that you kind of almost that you, you can very nearly forget, oh, no, I've got an actual job to do here. <laughs> like I need to be focusing on the ring as well. And you're very good at, you know, giving giving me shit back, but at the same time, making sure that the focus is still on the product in the ring when I get a little bit overexcited. But that's, um, that's a skill that people have to learn as well, mm-hmm. we, including me. Like, I, I think if I was mid-argument with an idiot like you, 
in uh, in like 2008, you know, kind of time, then I would have been more likely to, even if there was a major spot in the match coming up that was important to the story, you know, I would probably keep going with the argument rather mm -hmm. than making sure I bring it back to, for example, like as a play-by-play -play guy, you should with very few exceptions you should always call a near fall so like even if you're mid-sentence or the other guy's mid-sentence if a pin comes even if it's like an early pin and it's obvious it's not going to be the one that finishes the match you know you should still act like it might be because that's your job so it's like i would i'm i think better now at sort of cutting people off and being like oh hang on a second one two you know and then and then maybe going back to what we were talking about but um but yeah, that's the sort of a, a knowing when to um, abandon what you were talking about because something more important is happening in front of your eyes is is quite a, that's not an, well, for me at least, it wasn't an automatic skill. Yeah, no, it's something that definitely comes with time. Um, and I mean, I just put you over slightly there for a second, but I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll continue. Yeah. I'll con no, I'll continue to put you over a tiny bit more here and this will be the first and last time this ever happens, just wow. so you know. So enjoy this. But uh, just Lockdown some, some has changed you, you know. Well, I don't get out much anymore. <laughs> I, don't, I don't. I don't have a chance to talk to people. This is this is my only outlet. Um, but no, just some, something. I don't. I don't think you would know this, but um, I can't remember who it was specifically. But I know it was definitely one of the one of the lads from Lucha, and I I want to say it was Cameron, uh, the Buffalo Soldier. I I think it was him. It could have been someone else. I'm sorry if it was whoever's listening. If it was you, but. I'm pretty certain it was Cameron, but I remember we were on our way to one of the Frontline slash WrestleGate shows in Nottingham. And I remember he was like, oh, uh, I'm really excited. And I was like, oh, why is that? He, I was like, are you excited for your match? And he goes, yeah, yeah, the match will be fine. But uh, Dave Bradshaw's doing commentary, isn't he? And I was like, yeah, yeah, me and Dave will be doing commentary on your match. He goes, ah, oh, yeah, Dave Bradshaw's, he's like the G British wrestling's Jim Ross. Like, if you know, you've, you're like in the indies, you know you've made it once you've had Dave Bradshaw call your match. <laughs> wow. wow! And I just and I just paused and went, "You motherfucker! What? I'm I'm also calling your match." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then I did I did pause. I was like, "Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, he is. He has been around for a lot longer than me, especially at commentary." Well, so, well, uh, thank you very much. I'm very flattered. And I, yeah. I, I, I wouldn't say I'm a, again. I wouldn't say I, you know. I've actually I've worked with Jim Ross once, uh, not not with us both commentating because. For one thing, that wouldn't work, right? Because two play-by-play -play guys, you wouldn't do. But he came and did for what culture he did the first time they did a live pay-per-view streaming um, was in I don't know, it must have been like October 2016, and he was gonna um, do you know do the play-by-play -play for the night. So I I was I had the night off essentially, so I showed up to the to the venue anyway because we were at the start of a three-day uh, loop, like a three-day tour. Um, so I was going to be doing nights two and three. Um, but I thought, oh, I've got the night off today. And then one of the um, sort of the main agent backstage said, um, said, oh, Dave, are you OK producing JR in his headset? <laughs> so I'm like, what? Um, I suppose like and uh, he was, you know, he was cool. Though. He was a you know, nice guy. He said, he said, just uh, if we're going to a video package or whatever, give me the countdowns. And then uh, unless I say something wrong that you want me to correct, just shut up and let me do my job. I was like, yes, sir. Like, you know, <laughs> and uh, That and must that, have been uh, pretty daunting, though, right? Because that's, that's essentially your, like, 
your idol in commentary yeah. and you have to you're essentially I mean I don't want to say you're his boss but you're essentially in charge of him I guess for the, <laughs> for the length of a show yeah it was scary afterwards because I was a bit like you know as the show is finishing and I'm about to go backstage and then I'll, I'll see him obviously I'm a bit like okay did, was that you know I'm thinking was that okay will he be like pissed off like so what time we go was that was it all right with the counts and he was like he's like yeah great thanks and I was like okay good <laughs> like, you know, that was, so that was that and uh but you know he gave me some advice on things but for some reason I I felt a, a, a overwhelming urge to ask him like if you're out there for a you know like when he does Wrestlemania or something like you're there for four hours right sitting at that desk I'm like what do you do if you need you know if you need a pit like a pit or whatever <laughs> um because I'm always like can I go and abandon my post and just leave the play leave the color guy there to, to while I go and, and he's like oh, why you wear dark trousers son yeah. <laughs> I was like, so I didn't want to ask if that means he's you know actually weed himself before but um but no just think little things like like that and um but, I mean that was yeah that was daunting but the um I think the third night tour was was also awesome in a totally different way because i I was commentating that, and it was with Jim Cornette. And oh we were wow! Huge, two and a half thousand seater ice rink in Manchester, Altrincham in Manchester, and the main event was like Cody Rhodes against Kurt Angle, um, and Bret Hart was there doing, you know, having doing an appearance and all that kind of stuff. And um, and Jim's another one who Jim Cornette is another one who. I, I I already knew him because I'd done a live tour with him. So I'd been the host for like a Q and A live thing with him two years earlier um so he was sort of already a, a friend but um but I'd never commentated with him and again this one was one that wasn't going out live so there was time to talk between matches and he was he was another person who was really good at giving me advice you know he would say he would say like sort of things I sort of already knew that I could improve at but but that you know that he the fact that he then said them sort of made me think yeah good I'm on the right Sort of track so things like uh after the first match on the show we did was a really good tag team match it was um mustache mountain you know tyler Bate and trent seven uh, against who was it johnny moss and liam slater i think and it was a really good like match and me being me i get quite overexcited on commentary so you know i did this sort of uh, there were several spots where i was like dialing it up to 10 you know and uh I, as we finished that first match, stopped recording. I was like, "Am I? Uh, how was it, Jim? Am I okay?" He's like, "Well, you got a set of pipes on you, son." <laughs> and he goes, "Like, but you know, don't uh, don't get up to ten in the opener because then we're, you haven't got anywhere to go, like for the rest of the show, particularly the main event. Mm. You know, so it's like and I'd always been aware. I always thought, particularly in my sort of earlier years doing it, that." One of my weaknesses, if you like, was that um, I only sort of have, I only really had two gears sort of talking normally kind of, you know, in that early part of the match where there's mat wrestling happening or whatever, or sort of, yeah, full blast. Oh, my God, like JR style. And so, like, one of the things I, I've tried to do over the years is develop those middle gears, <laughs> if you know what I mean, so that I'm not constantly like all or nothing. Um but yeah, you know, the fact that he said that was like was like kind of validation that I knew what was, you know, what 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 were the things I needed to work on. But otherwise, he was very 
you know, he was very encouraging, very sort of complimentary, which was nice because then it also made me think, okay, I'm not like if Jim Cornette's and, and Jim's the kind of guy, as I'm sure people will know, but particularly if you've met him or know him, like he'll tell you if you're rubbish. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't doubt that for a second. Like, yeah, and he was afterwards, he was like, oh, you're really good, man. I was like, oh, thank you. <laughs> like, that's a that's a relief, you know. Uh, but that was a just a magical night. Kurt Angle's one of my favorite wrestlers of all time as well. Kurt, uh, Cody Rhodes is one of my favorite of the, you know, current generation. To, so to see, you know, to get to call that main event and I'm sitting there surrounded by two and a half thousand people and I'm commentating with Jim Cornette. It was almost like being in a weird dream. Um, so that was one of those real kind of moments where, you know, what we call marking out where you're sort of like yeah. being a real fanboy and you try and do it in your head only. <laughs> you're, trying, <laughs> you're trying to be all cool and professional outwardly and in your head you're like, this is really cool. It is. I think it is hard though when something legitimately pops you, in a, whether it's just something small in a match or whether it is a big moment type thing like what you just described, it is hard to kind of keep that, okay, I still have to be professional thing because, but I think that again, that's one of the things that makes the business so awesome. It's that we're all kind of fans first and with commentary, especially when you do get that excited as much as you can, you know, you, you, you're, you're always going to be your own big, biggest critic. So when you, when you listen to yourself back saying like marking out, I guess, as you put it, um, you're probably going to cringe at yourself. But I think from a fan's point of view, it's almost enjoyable because it's like, oh, wow, they, yeah, they enjoyed it as much as I'm enjoying it. Yeah, and, and I enjoy wrestling more if I'm commentating it, if that makes sense, because mm. because it's your job to get into the moment. And yeah. so, you know, like it would, be, it would be the same with football, I suppose, or, or anything else. If you're, you know, if you've just got it on in the background and you've got five other things going on in your living room and whatever, then you maybe don't get as emotionally invested in it. But if you're literally, you know, I, I, I'm very fortunate, I get often get the best seat in the house, you know, at ringside and I'm surrounded by fans and you're in that moment and it's your job to tell every detail of the story that's happening in front of you, then you, you in telling the story, you become totally engrossed in the story as well. And yeah, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're absolutely right that you end up kind of uh, living every near fall and, you know, as if it was the most important thing in the world. And that's not fake, but that's not, you're not putting that on. Um, in most cases, like I'm, I'm properly in that moment. Yeah, definitely. And uh, just quickly before we, uh, we're going to start wrapping up in a bit. But before we do, I've got a little, uh, little, you know, curveball to throw at you. We well, like to usually end this podcast uh, or come to the end of the podcast with uh, a bit of a quick fire game. Sometimes right. the game changes a little bit, but I've, for you, I've prepared a few quick fire questions. See, uh, see what you can give us on these. Yeah. So. Purely from a fan's perspective, even if you were doing commentary on it, what would you say is the greatest match you've ever seen live? Um, oh, in, I've seen in person. Yes. Oi. Um, I don't know. There's so many. Um, probably still, and it might just be because I'm super nostalgic, but it was awesome, is um, Bret Hart and British Bulldog at, at SummerSlam. Awesome. Um, who is your all-time favourite pro wrestler? Oh, I hate that question. <laughs> That's so do I. It's, it's, it's so such an hard. open question, isn't it? <laughs> I was, for some reason, I was thinking about this like after I turned the light off in, in bed the other night and couldn't sleep until I'd worked it out. <laughs> but um, I, I've been going through a bit of a Randy Savage phase recently. 
Uh, I keep watching his matches on the network and all that kind of stuff. So if you ask me right now, probably Macho Man. Um, right. I, I go through Bret Hart phases. I go through um, Shawn Michaels phases sometimes. That I could I could probably give you like five. I, I don't know if I could give you one. Okay. Well, on Kurt the Angle, Kurt Angle's another one. Well, on the flip side of that, who is your all-time favorite, like, guilty pleasure wrestler? Everyone has that one person who's on their list of favorite people, and, like, other people will see that name and be like, why are they there? So who's that one person to you who you uh, have no uh, issue, perhaps, say, admitting to? Oh, Ultimate Warrior, 100%. Okay, see, I don't think that's a person who is a guilty pleasure. Like, as Not much really. as, you know, people can rag on him for his in-ring style, he was a big deal. Like, he was a pretty big... I'm talking about, like... Guys who went like if if I so for me okay so as an example my one Scotty Too Hotty I grew up and if I put SmackDown on and Scotty Too Hotty wasn't on the show I was not happy. <laughs> that's like, my guy. That's quite random. Like no, not no, sexy. Just Scotty Too Hotty. No, just Scotty. I if I didn't see the worm every Saturday afternoon when I Ew. put SmackDown on, yeah. <laughs> yeah, then I would be very disappointed. It was my favorite act in pro wrestling when Scotty would come out and do the worm. I, I will, I, I'm trying to think of a wrestler that's a guilty place. I mean, I, the uh, the hardcore title, which I, get, I, I guess I could say Crash Holly if I want to put that into yeah. a person, but like that that whole 24 sevens, I know they've reenacted it in, you know, more recently, but that original when it was totally new doing the 24 seven hardcore rule, um, most of the, which was Crash Holly, I, I thought that was like hugely entertaining i remember at the time yeah i I loved it i absolutely loved the one when they went to the i don't know what they call it in america but that that kids play center type thing it's like a ballpark and stuff yeah the ball pit yeah (laughs) um okay who is your favorite person in pro wrestling uh whose matches you enjoy calling the most um oh man i can't can't say one person okay give, give us two or three if it helps um i'll tell you what i like is i like it when people and and there are lots of guys who do this like take the role of commentator seriously and want to come and talk to you about it so like you know they i I try to go to people before their matches and ask you know is there anything you want me to put over in the match and whatever but there are some guys who who like make a point of sort of you know just as they make a point of obviously going through their match with their opponent before they go out there they make a point of coming over to the, you know, the commentators, if, if I haven't already gone over to them and sort of saying, okay, uh, you know, Dave, this is what we're doing. I'm focusing on this. So try and put over the, you know, that I'm working on the arm or, or whatever, it, you know, whatever it is um, and blah, blah, blah. You know, so um, there's a few guys I can think of in British wrestling who do, who do that. Nathan Cruz is always very good at doing that. Um, Martin Kirby, I know he's saying he's retired now. I hope I hope he changes his mind at some point. But um, Martin Kirby was always very good at that. There's probably there's plenty actually. I'm, I'm, by starting to name them, I'm falling into a trap now because now I'm <laughs> going to forget people. But that that I would say is um, people who make a, a a point of sort of working with the commentator rather than just thinking they're just another part of the scenery. I think is is very very helpful. Cool. Um, I think I know the answer to this based on what you said a few minutes ago, but what is your favourite show that you've ever called? Um, yeah, possibly that the one with Cody and Kurt, which was uh, called True Legacy. Um, 
but I I also had a really good time doing the 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 final stages of the that pro wrestling World Cup I was talking about. We did in sort of a five day uh, tour, sort of around the UK. Um, so sort of the, the round of sixteen, and then the you know the quarters and the semis and the final. Um, and in that in the course of that, those five days, there was some absolutely like stunning matches. Like so. Um, so one of one or more of those shows would have to be up there as well, I think. Cool. Uh, and we 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 touched on it very slightly earlier that you, as well as doing commentary, you've also done a lot of interviews with people in the business for places like Wrestle Talk. Who would you say are probably like your top three favourite pro wrestlers or people within the business that you've had the chance to interview? Ooh. Um, yeah. Good question. DDP. Okay. Uh, was was lovely and. Um, again very encouraging it's like it's just it's nice when people take the time do you know what i mean if, if they think you're good at what you do to to say particularly when they're big stars and they don't need to but like I said, after i did a interview with ddp who's just incredibly charismatic in person you just instantly love him you know he's got that kind of presence when he walks into a room um but afterwards he was like hey man you're good at you know you're good at this i was like oh thank you for, thank you very much you know it, it's just it there were some there's, there's some guys who you interview who really sort of make the time to, to sort of I've seen guys who come in and they want to shake hands with the cameraman and the sound guy and really sort of um, are just really humble people. Um, Bret Hart was probably my favorite interview I've ever done, um, which I did for for Wrestle Talk uh, when Wrestle Talk was on Challenge TV a few years ago. Uh, that, actually, that's a weird story because I did it in uh, this must be 2014, 15. And I, we, he was doing this uh, a live, you know, speaking tour Q and A thing, uh, and that night that we were going to interview him was in Leicester City's football stadium. Yeah, yeah and, I think I remember seeing this actually. Yeah, and it, but so I went, so we, we, you know, our, my camera guy and the sound guy set up in the seats of the actual, you know, outside in the actual main bit of the stadium, and I sort of interviewed. Bret Hart sitting on this sort of ledge and it was November as well it was really cold like sitting in this totally dark stadium like none of the floodlights were on you know <laughs> and I was just like that, that's another one of those mark out moments because as I say I started the interview by apologizing to him about booing him at SummerSlam and uh, I'm sitting there thinking like this is the coolest thing I'm sitting in a completely empty football stadium like discussing SummerSlam 92 with Bret Hart but <laughs> and I, yeah that was one of those moments where you're like oh, my job's really cool that's awesome um well that's two you got what you still got one more oh did, was it three sorry yeah it's three uh, top three. Oh man um and what why isn't why has it not been Vince Russo <laughs> uh, Vince like Vince Russo was nice enough when I like, when I met him, like um, he's uh, he's he's quite. Um, I mean, this was a few years ago, so he might have changed, but he was quite sensitive about his legacy. I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, I think someone else had interviewed him previous, like prior to me, and and I'd been told, but you know, based on how that that other interview had gone, to kind of tread carefully because he, when he was questioned about. In this other interview about whether he was you know like what his 
uh, contribution was to the wrestling industry and, and it was sort of asked I think in a way that he found aggressive he was very defensive you know um, but I you know I, I found him um, amenable enough I suppose um, yeah um, who else uh, oh I mean um, Drake Maverick who's rock star spider you know I've, I've known uh, Spud for many years because he was on the UK indie scene when I started commentating and he's a uh, uh, a lovely man and a good, you know, good friend. But he, he's always very. Um, he's he's one of those guys who's makes makes time for everyone involved, you know, camera crew and every, everything else, and is very sort of generous with his um, with his time and all that kind of stuff. There's probably others, but I mean, they they stand out. Awesome. Uh, so these ones are super quick. Jerry Lawler or Bobby Heenan? Uh, Bobby Heenan. Sorry, Jerry. Mara Ronaldo or Joey Styles? Oh, Mara. Vince McMahon or Gorilla Monsoon? Um, Monsoon. All right. Who is your favourite co-commentator that you've ever worked with, and why is it Costa? Uh, who's Costa? Uh, we're going to gloss over that question. Um, so <laughs> no, go on, go on. I, I know. Look, we've 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 only been working together for a short period of time, so it's fine. So uh, excluding me. So maybe you'll your... grow, maybe you'll grow on me over time. Yeah, like a rash. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who who's my fa- well? Um, as I say, I marked out for uh, working with Cornette. Uh, Dean Ayers is very talented and and is is still doing some things in places. Um, and I don't know, there's, there's so many different people bring different... You know, James R. Kennedy, as I said, me and him have had a really good um, rapport. Matt Stryker in a totally different way. Stu Bennett, actually. There was one show I did with you know, Stu Bennett, like Wade Barrett, um, and Matt Stryker. And Stu does this more sort of slightly heelish kind of thing. And Matt did the sort of analyst um, type thing. And, and actually, that's, that's the only way in which a three-man booth works, I think. Mm. You need three different roles, so like you've got to have a play-by-play guy, sort of antagonist, and then a sort of uh, yeah, an analyst. That then it can work. Otherwise, I think three-man booths can be more more trouble than they're worth. Cool. I've got two more for you. Okay. Out of all of the historic calls by commentators in the years of pro wrestling, what would you say is the greatest wrestling call of all time? Um. Or at least one big one that just always resonates one, with you. And sits stand, with you. I, I struggle to say it's the best of all time, but one, do you know what? One that I think is underrated is uh, it's, it's a JR one and it's a Hell in a Cell one, but it's not what you're thinking. You remember that six man Hell in a Cell at Armageddon 2000? Of course. Where uh, Undertaker's got Rikishi by the neck and is about to sort of semi choke slam him onto that back of that truck that's got a load of sawdust on it. Yeah. Uh, and just as he's holding him before, before they do the move jr shouts out you can see the edge of the world from here and i'm like oh yeah that's a nice line like uh and I, I never think that i never think he quite because the match isn't as well remembered as say you know foley and undertaker where, where he has some of his most classic lines i always think oh man so some of some of these go under the radar because they're not as famous matches but, yeah. yeah cool and the last one i've got for you this is a dream match and it's two out of three falls it's a common uh, it's whoever's the best at commentary gets the first fall fighter gets the second fall and the best alcohol consumer you know drinker gets the third fall 
Who right. wins in this two out of three falls match between you and JBL, John Bradshaw, Layfield? All right, so go through them again. What's the first fall? So commentary is the first fall. Whoever has the best, whoever's the best at commentary. Well, we do two different things. Like he's not a play-by-play commentator. He's a colour commentator. You know, so we'll call, can we call that a double countdown? Yeah, I mean, look, it's your match. You're booking the match, mate. Yeah, You're, it's on you. I don't know what a double countout does to the mechanics of a two out of three falls, mate. Probably <laughs> nothing good, but let's, no. let's roll with it. But, yeah. Cool. And in the fight? Oh, him. Cool. So <laughs> JBL has one point. And are you out drinking him? I think. Tread carefully. <laughs> he, he has a reputation for being a really good drinker. But. I wonder whether he's one of those people where the reputation is not quite, you know, has become inflated over time. Because I can drink. You know, I'm a big guy. I'm like 6'6". Six, six. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> we're going to say 200-something pounds. So well over that recently with my lockdown belly. Uh, I reckon I could I reckon I reckon could challenge him on drinking. Uh, mate, if he hadn't blocked me on Twitter, I'd call him out for you. Yeah. Well, I have no und- I have no real understanding of why I'm blocked. I don't think I've ever tweeted him in my life, so I'm, I'm really confused. Well, I've blocked you on Twitter, I think, haven't I? I assume I have. No, no, no. You still follow me. You like uh, all that great Costa content. I think I, I, maybe, yeah, maybe I've decided to like just you know, keep an eye on you. Keep your, en- <laughs> keep your enemies close. Good. Yeah, good call, to be fair. Um, awesome. Well, thanks for that. So just as we're wrapping up, um, I know you've got a blog and you've got your social media handles. Uh, feel free to give them a plug, man. Uh, yeah, you can catch me. Well, I have a uh, yeah website is with where the blog is is davebradshaw.tv. You can catch me on Twitter at Dave Bradshaw. Um, you can catch me on Instagram and Facebook where I'm at Dave Bradshaw 83. And at the moment, while it's lockdown, I'm you'll see it on my social media if you follow me. But I'm uh, I've been putting together a weekly crossword uh, in on pro well, pro wrestling themed clues. So if you're into puzzles then come and do that. And I'm, uh, I'm also writing for WrestleTalk magazine at the moment as well in the absence of, uh, uh, of there being, you know, very much commentary to do. So um, you can check out some of my written work in, in WrestleTalk magazine, which is out every month in all good news agents. Awesome. Well, it's been good to talk to you again. Uh, the pleasure, my good sir, has indeed been all yours. Um, See, this and... is exactly what I'm talking about. This, this has been nice. And then you ruin it with... You know, one of these sort of ego trips right at the end. Listen, it's not an ego trip. It's just, you know, stating facts. I'm, I'm a delight and a joy. And, you know, you're an OK guy. Thanks. Well, you know what? <laughs> you put me over a couple of times in this show. And, I, and that's now going to be forever in, in audio rec- record. So um, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. Yeah, I might edit that bit out. We'll see. Yeah, well, I'll, I will remember even if you do. <laughs> oh well awesome man well take care and uh hopefully we'll be back on the commentary booth sooner rather than later i certainly hope so i'm getting i'm getting withdrawal symptoms at this point not from not of you but of commentating nah, nah you missed me he's but he said it folks he's missed me fine whatever <laughs>